the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hi, it's Hugh Hewitt. Welcome to the interview with Hugh Hewitt, sponsored by AndrewandTodd.com. Andrew and Todd are with Sierra Pacific Mortgage. They help you with all your real estate lending needs. If you're refinancing your home, if you're buying a new home, if you're a senior who wants a reverse mortgage, if you're a veteran who doesn't want to put any money down, whatever it is, if you're in the private real estate market for yourself, and maybe you want an investment property, try AndrewandTodd.com or call 888 now on to the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Welcome to the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Today I'm talking with the author of this remarkable book, San Francisco, Michael Schellenberger. He's in, I think, Oakland this morning. Good morning, Michael, and welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Hugh. It's, it's really important. I'm so impressed by your book, and I want to get a little background out for people before we begin. Uh, you're married and living in Oakland, 50 years old. Am I right on these things? Yes, I live in Berkeley. Okay, Berkeley. Uh, you were a Peace and Global Studies major at Earlham College, which is a liberal arts college in Richmond, Indiana. Can you give us a little more background on, on where you're from and where you grew up? I, I can't find that. I've read the book thoroughly, but I can't find much about Michael Schellenberger. Sure. I am from Greeley, Colorado, born in 1971. My parents were teachers, community college professors, I was, my parents were from Mennonite background, uh, so long tradition of pacifism. I was radical left in my youth. I went to Nicaragua when I was 17, worked on progressive causes all my life, mostly on the environment for the last 20 years. But in the 1990s, I worked on drug decriminalization, harm reduction, and criminal justice reform, including for George Soros and with Maxine Waters. I want people to know that because Michael and I could not be more opposite in our upbringings or our political views. I grew up in a Roman Catholic uh, a household in Warren, Ohio. I went to Harvard and went to Michigan Law School. I've been conservative my whole life. You've been a leftist your whole life, correct? Yeah, I would say probably in the last 20 years, more liberal. And then I recently feel even more strongly that I'm a moderate rather than a progressive. I wrote an essay recently called Why I'm Not a Progressive. So there's some issues here around identity and language where I don't think we have exactly the right words to describe someone like me, which is part of the reason I wrote the book, is I wanted to be able to say, here's what I think at length. And, and I reject a lot of those labels as well, because when a Catholic Christian comes to the issue of homelessness, they are obliged to take it very seriously in a way that most progressives think they are taking it but often don't. And that's why I wanted to talk to you about San Francisco. It's a book around which a lot of people, I think, can agree and will rally. My first substantive question, I'm going to come back to this, Michael, later. Presently before the Senate is the Build Back Better bill. In the Build Back Better version of the House, there is more than $170 billion set aside for affordable housing and homeless programs. What do you think that money will do, good, bad, or you don't know? Well, it really depends on whether or not the money is used for what we would call housing earned rather than housing first. So we currently have a policy, incredibly, where we just supposedly view housing as a right and just give housing without condition to people. I point out in San Francisco that what we call homelessness is really it's really a misleading word. I mean, we're really dealing the people on the street overwhelmingly are suffering from untreated mental illness and addiction. There's a set of folks who are just down on their luck for a little bit or a mom escaping an abusive husband. We do a good job taking care of those folks, the visible homeless, the unsheltered homeless, the people that are, you know, the people that were we that we call homeless. Those folks are overwhelmingly suffering from addiction, and what we know works is for there to be some incentive for them to deal with their addiction, and often that's using housing. So I argue, and I use Europe as a model, there should be universal shelter. We should not let our fellow humans freeze to death outside. They should be required to accept shelter, 
But then if they want their own apartment, they need to earn it, usually through abstinence or, you know, if they're suffering mental illness by complying with their psychiatric regimes or going to work, whatever it is on their personal plan, that's going to help them to achieve independence. And I will come back at the end of this conversation to the specifics of the language in the Build Back Better bill. But there's a lot of ground I want to cover first so that people understand that the conclusion you just rendered is my conclusion. Unless you tell me how you're going to spend this money with great specificity, I'm opposed to it. I would gladly support $170 billion going to the Salvation Army and their approach to homelessness. That's not what's happening in Seattle, in Portland, in San Francisco, in Los Angeles. The epicenters of homelessness in America are West Coast. Michael has been there. He has devoted. How long did it take to write San Francisco, by the way, Michael Schellenberger? Well, I started the research in 2019. It's when I went to the Netherlands and I was just blown away by both how liberal Amsterdam is, but also how there's no homeless people on the street. I was there at the invitation of a member of parliament to give a speech on energy. Her husband is a drug policy expert. They had a big open drug scene. That's what Europeans call homeless encampments. We give them a a euphemism, but they call them open drug scenes. And he just explained to me that how they dealt with it, that you have to shut down the open drug scene. You can't allow open drug markets in your city. Obviously, it's not compatible with civilized life. And that was in early 2019. I then went back and did some more field work. I had a Apocalypse Never as my book on the environment, which came out last year. So really two years of research and then about a year of writing. It was too – I did it too fast. It was – I was exhausted and, and pretty burned out by the end. It's very well done. Very, very persuasive, very effective. I've got a couple of questions for you about it. Your end game is something you label Cal Psych. I think I agree with you on Cal Psych. We'll come back to that. By way of background, for people who are listening to the first Hugh Hewitt episode of the interview or hearing this on the radio for the first time, I am a lawyer – University of Michigan trained, Harvard undergrad, spent from 1989 to to 2016 in California. I was appointed to the Air Quality Management District. I was on the California Arts Council for many years, and I spent 17 years as a commissioner on the Children and Families Commission of Orange County, which spent between 20 and 40 million dollars a year on children zero to five and their families, many of whom were homeless. So I've been in the work for a long time, seeing it, And most recently, I went with Judge David Carter to Skid Row for his hearing on the homeless in Southern California. Unfortunately, in September, the Ninth Circuit overturned Judge Carter's attempt to take control of the homeless problem in the city of Los Angeles and the county of Los Angeles. We'll come Mm -hmm. back. I wanted you to know my credentials, Michael, so you know I'm coming at this from some background. I've also taught constitutional law at Chapman University's Fowler School of Law for 25 years. And I really know this issue, but I don't know it like you do. Because you've studied San Francisco, which is the epicenter. When you named it San Francisco, did you intend for people to think it was only about San Francisco? Because it's not. It's actually about every West Coast urban center of which I know something. No, I mean, I, I think the book is about the subtitle. The book is called Why Progressives Ruin Cities. That was that, that is uh, basically says what the whole book is about. I've had a couple of reviewers say, this is not a de- the definitive book about San Francisco, and, and they're right. I didn't intend it for it to be that. If you want that book, there's other books you can read. It's also not exactly a book about homelessness, though homelessness is, is perhaps the biggest issue. But, you know, there's three chapters on mental illness. There's three chapters on crime, including homicides. I was really interested in this question of how did such a liberal place that says it cares so much about poor people, people of color, people suffering mental illness, people suffering drug addiction – How did it create so much misery on the streets? How is it that we have a situation that is so completely the opposite of what people who live here say is consistent with our values? And so it's really a book that seeks to understand that. What what, how does progressivism, leftism, liberalism go wrong? What's driving this and what's keeping it wrong? (laughs) What, What made it worse over 30 years since I point out the beginning of the book that I'm hardly the first person to point these issues out. In fact, it's one of the issues that I struggle with, which is how do you actually change things? Because I'm I'm not just an author. I'm an activist. I want to see things change. 
I'm also I have to tell say my I have to say the serenity prayer because I know that people have been saying the truth about this for a long time and and been ignored. Are you still a religious believer, Michael? I actually came back to my faith about two years ago when I was working on my book about the environment. I was confirmed Congregationalist Christian, but I didn't really believe it and found that I needed that faith when I was um, actually to finish my first book on the environment. You know, one of the themes of both my books and also my third book, because this is a trilogy about the threats to civilization from within, is that progressives are constructing an alternative religion out of climate change and then also out of homelessness, and that that religious zealotry and really the lack of awareness that it's a religion that they're in the grip of is the reason, is the underlying reason why we have these problems. There are certainly issues of money and political power, social, cultural power. But I do believe that really what's behind the dogmatism is a kind of secular religion, one that has supernatural beliefs, one that has a, a different morality from the universal enlightenment Christian morality that our country was founded on. I agree with that. Uh, I'm curious as to which denomination in which you practice now. I do not have a church. <laughs> it's a it's a it's an issue. It's not I haven't been able to I haven't found that. All right. Um, it's, that, you know, it's, a lot uh, of people. I, I something I we would love to have. I'm an evangelical Roman Catholic Presbyterian. So I go to mass on Saturday and I go with my Presbyterian wife to our Presbyterian church on Sunday. So I think there's one river and two banks and it doesn't really matter, provided you've got the water. Um, let me talk back to San Francisco as well. My daughter lived there after college, working for a big company for a lot of years. I went and visited her a lot. Uh, my wife and I did. Uh, she's been moved and subsequently married. And I no longer go back to San Francisco. After two years ago, when we went up to see Hamilton, when it debuted on the West Coast, I stayed at the Ritz-Carlton. I'm well off. But to get from the Ritz-Carlton to that theater was a walk of horror. And I just won't go back anymore. Michael, do you hear more people telling you that? Oh, yeah, of course. And a lot of people leave. And so there's definitely a self-sorting mechanism going on where the city, you know, loses the people who would like to see things change and improve. And it keeps the people who are somehow comfortable with it. I'm not comfortable with it. I wrote the book to express my my concern about it. You know, one of the concerns is that there's this curly effect, you know, which is this idea that that the politics actually reinforce themselves because the people that want to see change move out. And so at the end of the book, I sort of argue that really the possibility for change, I think, occurs at the state level. California as a whole is more conservative than San Francisco is as a city, and it may require state action, Similar, something similar that we've seen in Texas, where the, it took the Texas legislature to act because the, the Austin City Council wouldn't. The biggest hope is that Judge Carter the U.S. District Court judge for the Southern Central District of California, when he reopens the hearing record, takes more data, that he issue a rule taking over homelessness in L.A. and the county and has it upheld by the Ninth Circuit, not overturned. That's possible. I think that's the best hope. And he could do a Cal Psych. I'll come back to that. Uh, I don't expect you've heard the radio show before, Michael. I've been on for 21 years and I have a, a tradition. I ask the same two questions of every first-time guest. It's got nothing to do with your book, but I have to keep my tradition going. The first is, have you read The Looming Tower by Lawrence Wright? Yes. What did you think of it? Loved it. It's great reporting. <laughs> right? I don't, I'm trying to remember what I remember from it, but yes. It's great reporting. The fanaticism it, is familiar. That's yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, I that's, think that there's something, I think people, I think a lot of people don't understand that fanatics are idealists. And that the blindness, there's a chapter in my book called Love Bombing, which is about yes, cult. Jim Jones. I, 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 I'm yeah. going to get there. And which, I'm going to get there because I thought maybe yeah. he will have read this because you're interested in cults. And Al-Qaeda is a cult. And Jim Jones was a cult. Yes. And one of the surprises of San Francisco, of course, I've known about Jim Jones forever. I'm 65 years old. I didn't know Jim Jones until I read San Francisco. So well done. Uh, second question. This has absolutely got nothing to do with anything. I'm like the looming tower. Do you believe Alger Hiss was a communist spy? I thought it, I thought we knew he was a communist spy, didn't we? You're right. <laughs> Is there but a most of the on? young people, most of the young people I have on don't know that. And they say and they don't want to answer it or they don't want to admit ignorance on it. 
It's ironclad. We absolutely know it. I use it as a GPS for people's grasp of American history that was once ideologically uh, part of a, a, a ground that was contested, but now simply a factual assertion. And so I like to test people's ability to deal with facts contrary to their beliefs, because that suggests to me they're they're playing on a level field. And I think you are. I think you are. Um, I have one idi- one question about the book an idiosyncrasy. All right. I read closely when I have an author on. I, you deserve that. I note that you often name sources and you often don't name sources or people. For example, you don't use the name Anita Bryant or John Briggs, uh, who are referenced as anti-gay activists as they were on pages 147 and 8. Uh, you don't name New York Times reporter Lucinda Franks on page 184. She's in the footnotes, whereas Bryant and Briggs were not. You do not name John Barbagalata, who I don't know about. He ran against George Moscone and lost. And you don't even name Leo Ryan, yeah. who was the congressman killed in Guyana. But other places, you name all sorts of people. What is this? Why, why this approach? I'm trying to make um, both the. I do the same thing in both Apocalypse Never and San Francisco, and you're a good. You're you are a careful reader to pick up on it. What I'm trying to do is to make these books as accessible as possible, but no more. So when I think it's important for somebody to know a character, like I think it's important for people to know who Harvey Milk was. He's the famous pro-gay activist. Um, then he has a big role. I think it's important for people to know who Michel Foucault. Karl Marx and Jean-Jacques Rousseau are. There's other less important radical left thinkers that I don't name, you know, and, and it's and so really it's just a simple choice around here's the names that I think my readers need to know. And then they just need to know that a congressman, which would be Leo Ryan, you know, came to try to save people from being killed by Jim Jones and was shot. But I don't think they need to know that his name was Leo Ryan. Thank you. That it just it was picking at me as I would go along because I'd say, what? What? No, Anita Bryant. Everyone knows who she is. Now, they might not know who John Briggs was, but uh, I get it. OK, I get it. It's part of your narrative. It's what you think is expositionally effective. And I, I believe that I must say Foucault, yep. Victor Frankel, Jim Jones, Chesa Boudin, Jabari, Tom, there are a lot of names in this book and a lot of background that people need to know. First question, Foucault, how do you say his name? I've read it a million times. How do you say it? No, Foucault. Foucault, right. okay. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm terrible with French. So Foucault, I didn't know much about him except his position in the intellectual pantheon. I did not know the devastating impact he's had on America. I really didn't. And Victor Frankl I knew of, but I didn't really have a good, concise definition of his theory. So I salute you for both of that. But to find the Emil on this book, along with Housing First, Contingency Management, Assertive Case Management, Six Universals, Promotion Programs that are Swift, Certain, and Fair, there are a lot of concepts in this book. Were you daunted by the necessity of explaining the Emil as well as Six Universal Values at the, within one set of covers? I really love ideas and I really want, I think that people do, I think a lot of times authors do a bad job explaining ideas. I think sometimes they make them more complex than they need to. So I I take a lot of care to try to explain ideas that I think people should be able to understand. An intelligent high school student or an average college student should be able to read my books and understand the basic concepts and so that's what I've tried to do with these these ideas. And I do I, I do. I was Jordan Peterson said that my books are informationally dense. Uh, that's I that's what I'm going for. I want people to read these books and to walk away having been able to digest a pretty significant quantity of information, but in a hopefully pretty pleasant way rather than in, in like a textbook way. Uh, not that you're looking for it, but you get a gold star on the meal. In 1976, I heard then professor at Toronto, Alan Bloom, give a two hour lecture on the meal. I didn't have a clue as to what Rousseau was up to. I do now because of your concise summary. So I salute you for that. Some of us just don't have the time to read the meal, right? We're not we're not going to read it. But well done. Let's go back to the unhoused community. The three big groups, addicts, the mentally ill and the criminals. And there are Venn diagram, right? There's overlap. But where do you put percentages generally if we look at the San Francisco population who are living rough, as the English would say, 
as between the um, mentally ill, the addicted, and the criminal class? Sure. So the official count is there's 8,000 homeless in San Francisco. Most of us think that that number is too low because it was done two years ago. We've had more people there. So let's say there's 10,000 homeless. About 4,000 are, quote unquote, sheltered at any given night. So there's about 6,000 unsheltered of the 6,000 unsheltered. Basically, all of them are addicts, really, without exception. I mean, there's always somebody that's sober living in their car briefly, but the people that are living in tents or RVs, basically almost all of them are suffering late stage addiction, either to an opioid or to an amphetamine or to both. You know, most um, I mean, what's shocking is how cheap the drugs are. That's a big reason why we had homelessness. So the word homeless is a propaganda word, as I point out in the book. It was invented to confuse people as to the nature of the problem and also to basically be advocacy for subsidized housing. And I should stress that I'm not against subsidized housing. I just think it should be tied to personal behavior change. Yeah, so I, of those, I, I, you know, 6,000. Oh, I was just going to say, I think so. So there's a, there's a minority that suffer from really serious mental illness like schizophrenia. There are some and you see them and they're noticeable. They wrap a lot of clothes around their bodies pushing shopping carts. It's just they're usually in a, often in a psychotic state. Those folks are suffering serious mental illness. They're a minority. So, you know, it's hard to say exactly. I mean, the official numbers are that two thirds of the homeless are suffering from a drug addiction or mental illness. But those are generally undercounts because people don't want to be honest about their their state of mind. Um, you know, it's so cheap now to do hard drugs. It costs $2.50 for one dose of methamphetamine, and it costs just $20 a day to be using pretty significant amounts of fentanyl, which is the concentrated synthetic version of, of heroin. So it doesn't even take that much to be a street addict in San Francisco. One of the characters in my book was able to pay for it just by the cash welfare that San Francisco still gives out, as well as by the food stamps it still gives out. But you see a lot of shoplifting. You see petty crimes done to support people's habits. That's the level of criminal activity for addicts. There's been more uh, high-profile lootings, smash and grabs, robberies. The people that are committing those crimes are not hardcore addicts like that they, they may be using drugs or they may be high at the time they do those crimes but they're not in suffering late stage drug addiction they have cars they're driving places they're using the internet they're planning things far in advance the addicts that are on the street are folks that are just using are smoking fentanyl every four hours or smoking meth every few hours and so they are not long-term thinkers. They're not able to plan significant criminal activity. It's just um, much simpler stuff. And often they're just given everything they need or or if they're women, they're doing sex work to earn the money for drugs. Crimes of opportunity. I tell people they have to see the movies Ben is Back or Beautiful Boy to get a sense. If they live in a world that is untouched by addiction, they have to at least see the movie of what addiction is like. I know addicts. I know dear friends who have lost children to addiction uh, do you know addicts well, other than the people that you've interviewed? Three, yeah, I have three friends of mine from my childhood had, had at least three had become homeless addicts. Two of them are dead. One of them is still alive and struggling. Um, he himself has told common friends of ours that he thinks he needs to be on probation. You know, several DUIs, continuing crack and alcohol addiction. He's just not getting the intervention he needs. You know, there are we've known that that addicts require intervention for ever ever since opium opioid addictions began, which is after the Civil War, when their opioids became used during Civil War. And then afterwards, people became addicted to op opioids. And then we had opium in the early 20th century, late late 19th century, brought over by Chinese immigrants. San Francisco was the last city to shut down its opium dens. And we know that, you know, you have to have intervention to stop your loved ones from just basically be, being addicts all day long. And usually what the picture with addicts is that, you know, they stop working, they mooch off friends and family until their friends and family basically cut off all ties and then they become homeless. At that point, the government has to arrest them after they break crime, after they break the laws and give them the choice of jail or treatment. 
that's really the only thing that we've ever known to work. You know, there's this idea that there's this idea among progressives that you shouldn't coerce people to quit their addictions, even after they break the law many times. It's bizarre. There's just it, no it's science very for bizarre. It. It, it. It's contrary to common sense. And the one thing that is it makes me worry. You're too young to have grandchildren, but I do. I have young grandchildren. I am worried about the trajectory of the country generally and of the West Coast in particular because of the explosion of addiction, crime and psychosis, a lot of which is brought about by the drug uh, explosion that you detail in San Francisco. But the intersection of the efforts to solve that has collided with the rise of an ideology, which I think is uh, a malign. Uh, that ideology is best, I think, summarized in the, per- in the person of uh, Chesa Boudin. Now, I heard his uncle argue once before he became a First Circuit judge. It's a brilliant family. It's obviously a very smart family. Chesa Boudin, I've heard about. I had no idea what a radical he was. Page 193 of your book. Upon taking office as district attorney in San Francisco in January 2020, Boudin followed through on his campaign promises. Instead of prosecuting and incarcerating people for breaking car windows to steal money or other items inside, Boudin proposed creating a $1.5 million fund and other, uh, to reimburse the car owners. Boudin's main goal is de-incarceration, and it goes on. He is flat out uh, anti-law enforcement. I mean, it's, it's stunning that he won, Michael. What were people thinking? There's, I mean, this is an interesting question. I mean, I think there's a – so, by the way, he, there's a recall election that will be June of next year, and most people think it will pass. So we think that San Francisco voters will recall Chesa next June. I also point out – and I, part of the reason what I wanted to communicate in San Francisco is that this has been a long-term process to get to Chesa. There, we had progressive prosecutors before Chesa Bodine, you know, really going back decades – and so he is the latest, most radical incarnation of many very left-wing progressive district attorneys. But yeah, I mean, it's just what you said. I mean, basically, these progressive prosecutors, and there's a bunch of them around the country, they're almost all of them funded by George Soros. They are just trying to get people out of jail and prison. We saw one of them in, in Milwaukee was let out on a $1,000 bail, and he took his SUV and ran over 40 people. Killed yeah. six of them. That's in Waukesha, and um, and he was somebody that had was the the thousand dollar bail that he was let out on was for having run over his girlfriend. And so you kind of go, what are these guys thinking? And I I'm working on some more articles about it, but basically what they're thinking is they just want to let people out of jail and prison. They view the system as really evil. So this really does go back to Rousseau through Marx and Foucault, too, which is this idea that our whole way of life, the whole system, the capitalist system, nuclear families, democracy, Western civilization, it's bad and and it's, it's the worst and we should radically change it and replace it with some pretty ill-defined alternative. They don't really have an alternative I mean, part of what I was so struck by, both on the environment and on this book, is that, you know, there used to be more there used to be more of a utopian discussion on the left of what they wanted, whether socialism or anarchism. Now it's almost just like the radical left is content to just tear things down and they really don't have any interest in figuring out how to replace them. I point out that there are, I think better liberal or in the past I might have said progressive approaches to sentencing to criminal justice that are more focused on rehabilitation. But what's so amazing is that the left is not interested in those, you know, like no, they're not use an- ankle monitors. Drug I, testing, I think you're right. They're not there interested is, in doing this. I think you're looking for Catholic Catholic social justice teaching, which is actually the the combination of liberal ideology and conservative theology to produce an operating system of subsidiarity and the care for the poor and the people who are defenseless, but without uh, an abandonment of rules. I want to go back. We end up at CHOP, uh, which is the group that took over Seattle's Urban Center, which you described the chaos they brought with them, and Boudin. 
and a Blade Runner kind of world in a lot of these cities. But it all begins. When does it oil into the city? And I, I read San Francisco and I decided it's Jim Jones who oozed into that city. And he captured my notes, tell me, Willie Brown, one of the most dynamic people I've ever interviewed, maybe the best interview I've ever done is Willie. George Moscone, he grabs Angela Davis. He grabs John Burton. It's just, you know, he's an old Paul who turns out to be susceptible to this. Jim Jones is something. And Willie Brown introduced him. I wanted to quote this. It's a combination of Martin Luther King, Angela Davis, Albert Einstein, and Chairman Mao. That's just so stupid. And Willie's so smart. How does that happen, Michael Schellenberger? That's not in San Francisco. That it happened is in San Francisco. But you don't explain to us how people so smart could fall for such an evil man. And I use evil advisedly. Well, I do explain it. That's the passage of the book where I say it's a new religion. That's the only way to explain it. That's the only way to explain it's a cult. how intelligent people turn off their rational faculties. Yeah, so they're... Willie Brown is brilliant. Um, he's probably the smartest, one of the smartest politicians in American history. And yes. so for him to say something so idiotic and, and to really, I, they call it, uh, you know, I use Jonathan Haidt, the, the uh, psychologist who describes religion. He says religion binds and blinds. And so the blinders, they basically just saw, here was this sociopathic minister, Reverend Jim Jones, who was clearly sociopathic. He was on heavy drugs. He was involved in sexual predation of young men and young women. He was a terrible person. I mean, there's just not a lot you can Evil. say about him. He ended Evil. up killing a thousand people. Evil. Yeah. And they just, in uh, the entire progressive liberal democratic establishment, all the way up to Carter, really was always trying to curry favors with him. And it wasn't just that, you know, there was something transactional about it. They wanted his money and also his congregants. But they also just loved him. They really believed in him. And, you know, you look at the films of that period, and it's hard not to be moved by these scenes of racially diverse congregations singing, clapping, smiling, laughing. It looked authentic. It didn't. I point out in the book, because I think it's easy to go back and say, well, what he was doing was never really charitable or anything. Unfortunately, they did good works. I mean, it's, you know, they actually did do things that you kind of go, this wasn't faking it. They were actually doing good things. They also did sinister things. Like he stole money from a number of black families in San Francisco, uh, middle class and working class families who gave them his house, basically. Gave the, sorry, gave them, gave him their house. So, yeah, but they had blinders to him because he basically would hypnotize people. I think that's the right word, actually. Yes. There's a way in which they would be hypnotized by his charisma and by his magnetism. And it was all about him love, loving and caring. And the cults call it love bombing. I thought this was a brilliant way to describe it, where they literally shower people with affection and love. And it's so hypnotizing. And people that are vulnerable and lonely in particular are really susceptible to that seduction. And so it was really a seduction. I think you describe it as evil and almost, um, you know, that is sort of the story of the snake, right? Is that there's a kind of seduction that goes on. And I think that's, I think that describes what Jim Jones was. Long ago, when I was an undergraduate, Michael, our, at Harvard in 1974 to 75, uh, the Harvard Law student who lived in the dorm with us warned us on the first night, the Hare Krishna are in Harvard Square, and they will love bomb you if you get near them. And you know, that, that, it was just... Oh, my gosh. Wow. Yeah. It was, it was a warning. Do not go near those. They look nice. They will take you out to a nice place on the Cape and we'll never see you again. Because that's what they, they love bomb people. It takes a long time to get out of a cult. But I digress. I want to go back to uh, Jim Jones, because I didn't realize until I read San Francisco, and I'm, I'm recommending it to everyone. I can't tell, especially conservatives and especially liberals who are mainstream have got to read this, because we are not our movements. My movement has a right-wing fringe, and Michael's movement has a left-wing fringe, and those fringes will devour the center unless we actually work together. But I didn't realize until I read San Francisco that Jim Jones's mass suicide, his murder of those thousand people, only days later, 
Dan White shoots George Moscone and Harvey Milk. It's no surprise that San Francisco experiences an almost communal PTS, right? I had no idea the timing was that close. I know. It's really strange. I mean, that's the part where this, where the people kind of go, there's something sick here. There was like a sickness. And I think that's right. The, there, the sickness in the title refers both to the untreated mental illness and addiction of the people on the streets, but it also argues that this idea of compassion only without any discipline or rationality is itself a kind of sickness and that the sickness infects the general population. It, it affects liberals and progressives. I mean, even those even those conservatives who I think signed off on things like Housing First, there's a kind of desire to not do the extra work of holding people accountable or some idea that, that it's more moral to basically just give people whatever they want. And it's not. It's coddling. And so oh, it's, hor- it's, it's hard. I trace this. I went down with Judge Carter sure. to Skid Row in the spring of this year. He held an all day uh, hearing on homelessness in the parking lot of the Women's Center in L.A., right there in the heart of Skid Row. And it's hard not to be impressed by I was with Andy Bales, by the way, uh, who you quote frequently in San Francisco. Andy, Andy told me to park in his building because I'd get mugged. He told me to walk with him. Otherwise, I'd have no credential. And look at me. I'm, you know, I'm a 65 year old white guy with a tie on. I was going to be a mark. So Andy got me in and out. But I was struck by the charisma. I mean, the bubbling charisma of some irrational people. But if you read the transcript of what they told Judge Carter, it doesn't make any sense. But damn, they were charismatic when they made that appeal. And that is the charisma that you talk about. And now I want to get to the heart of the problem. Between 2010 and 2020, the number of homeless people rose 31 percent in California. In the rest of the country, it went down 19 percent. Why did that happen? Because that's a big swing, Michael Schellenberg. And you talk about it in San Francisco, but try and encapsulate it for our listener why did the West Coast go completely towards a homeless, unhoused epidemic and the rest of the country kind of got it under control? Yeah, so it starts with the decision to make housing a right in, in California. That's called Housing First. It starts under Gavin Newsom, who is now governor, but was the mayor of San Francisco at the time. And everybody just agreed with it. I mean, I read over the archives and there was like there was like really nobody being like, this is not going to work. How can you just give away housing to whoever says they want it? They then decided to use all the money for housing and and to not fund sufficient shelter space. That then occurred over the whole state of California. So we don't have sufficient shelters. And the reason we don't is because we put all the money into much more expensive housing. The difference, of course, is that congregate shelters are cheap. It's kind of the FEMA type, you know, sprung structures that you probably saw with Andy Bales and Skid Row. But it's just simpler. It's more basic. You know, a single unit apartment costs $750,000 each. There's no way you could provide that for everybody that just shows up and says they want one. So then there was no requirement. You couldn't they didn't they couldn't require people to stay in shelters because they didn't have shelter space that existed. And then we had the opioid crisis and the methamphetamine crisis and a lot of addicts, somewhere around half the people on the street probably came from either out of state or out of town to basically take advantage of the cheap drugs and the open drug scene and just live as addicts on the street. I mean, one of the criticisms that people have made of the book is that I'm they say I've argued that homelessness is a choice. I actually don't think for the most part it's a choice. I think it's a result of addiction. I think it's a mistake to think that the decisions that people that are hardcore drug addicts are making are the are the result of free will or of choice. So it's really that we have enabled addiction. We've enabled untreated mental illness. We've allowed it to exist and we've kept it in the open. We've allowed it to exist in these open drug scenes rather than requiring people to shelter and get treatment. And the ideology that supports that is well represented in court. Not just Chesa Boudin, but the ACLU is becoming an epicenter of bad effects. And they're good lawyers. I've been up against them. And the environmental movement has good lawyers. I've been up against them. Good lawyers and bad ideology yields terrible results. And let's go to now what is suggested in Build Back Better. I'd love your reaction to this. 
There is uh, $200 million for the Presidio Park. $200 million for the Presidio Park. That's got nothing to do with homelessness. There's $3 billion for tree equity. It's got nothing to do with homelessness. But there is $170 billion for homeless programs and, uh, and affordable housing, including $34 billion for the Home Investment Partnership Funds under the Cranston-Gonzalez National Affordable Housing Act, $36 billion for the Home Investment Partnership Program, a housing investment fund of $10 billion within HUD, and then very $24 billion for tenant-based rental assistance, provided that all of these things, there's one prohibition, and I want to know what your reaction is to this, Michael Schellenberger, you may not give any of this money, housing and urban development, to a moving-to-work program. Why is that in there? What does it mean? Well, they're, yeah, they're trying to, uh, they just want to be able to give out housing without any restrictions on who gets it. And it's part of the agenda I described in San Francisco, which is that they want to remove conditions. They want to, I mean, it's, I, this will sound, I basically, at the end, I was like, basically what progressivism is, is it's the rejection of responsibility. That's what it's come to mean. Is it saying, not only, and I see it at every level. Um, we, they don't want responsibility for people on the street. They don't want responsibility for themselves. They don't take responsibility. They only demand responsibility of their political opponents. But they just want to be able to give out housing without any restrictions, and that's been a big part of what's contributed to the disaster. So, I think we can expect, as long as these guys are in charge, for the problem to get worse, not better. If this money is appropriated, it's a disaster. Um, it will it will go to these people with this ideology and it will go to fuel addiction and it will not remediate homelessness. It will not support intervention. It will not get addicts clean. And, and the heartbreaking part, it won't do anything. My, my wife and I were assaulted in the legal sense. That means an imminent fear of an unpermitted touching. We were assaulted by a, a obviously schizophrenic fellow a block from the White House last week followed us for a long period of time, screaming that he was going to kill us and cut our throats and stuff like that. I just stayed between her because I'm generally not afraid of the psychological. I hadn't read your book yet. Now I would be scared because of that. A couple of the anecdotes you tell about people being assaulted in San Francisco, usually single women by themselves, not men. And you've got to fight back if that happens. But what do you think will happen if this money goes to San Francisco? I mean, will the homeless population the addicted and psychopathic homeless population grow if they get a vast dollop of this money and build back better. Yeah, I mean, the problem is is just going to get worse. I mean, we I, I kept saying because I think, you know, most trends are nonlinear. And so I, I kept saying during the last two years, I was like, well, it can't get any worse than this. And then it did. And so I just stopped saying it. And now we're I mean, the other issue in the book, as you know, is about crime and homicides and the police We've basically we've lost, you know, we're 400 police officers short of the minimum in San Francisco. Every major most major cities, particularly the progressive ones, are short of police officers. Three thousand seven hundred have quit. That's your number. Three thousand seven hundred beat officers have quit in the last year since George Floyd. Yeah, I mean, they police officers, we owe them an apology. They were really badly mistreated. They were blamed for all sorts of things they shouldn't have been blamed for. I point out that police killings of all people, including African-Americans, has declined dramatically since over the last 50 years. Police departments, certainly every institution has bad bad apples in it. But police have done a pretty good job of improving themselves over the last 50 years in response to public pressure. You just meet so many police officers that are actually quite bleeding heart liberal types that are really quite compassionate and concerned that are not just, you know, former Marines that actually care about people and they're frustrated. They feel like they are mistreated and they are uh, by the public, by policymakers, the radical left in their efforts to defund the police. They really demoralized police officers. They've also restricted what police officers can do. And that's discouraging for, for, I mean, nobody wants to do a job where where they're where they're not allowed to do their job or and they're and they're told that they're bad people for doing their job. And so I think that you need to have we need to apologize 
to the I, I agree. For having I do that on the now. air. I do have to speak up for Marines, though. The individual who's done the most that I can see of serious thinking and attempt to help the homeless in the last five years is Judge David Carter, who is a Marine Corps veteran of the Battle of Quezon. And uh, and so Marines can have big hearts, too. I know you didn't mean to say the other, but I wanted to stay. Yeah, no. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 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 for sure. For sure. Um, Let's go now to solutions. Uh, Soft doctors make wounds stinky. Okay, I'll remember a few things from every book I read. I'll never forget that. Would you explain soft doctors make wounds stinky? Sure. I was uh, this is uh, I was in Amsterdam and. Part of the reason I was I, be, I become obsessed with Amsterdam because it's such a for anybody that's visited there, you know, it's a very liberal city. Marijuana's decriminalized. Sex work is decriminalized. But there are no significant numbers anyway of homeless people on the streets or certainly not open drug scenes. I spent a bunch of time shadowing a social worker and watching him really move, you know, really put pressure on people to improve their lives including offering housing as a reward for good behavior. And then I went to the big museum, which is called the Rights Museum, and I was really struck by these two galleries. Like one shows the Dutch off fighting wars and being real fighters and having a big emphasis on national security. And then in the next room was a picture of a kind of tranquil domestic scene of an affluent Dutch family. This is like 16th century or something. Right. Round face. Musical instruments. Yeah. Yeah, big round faces. And I was just struck that, you know, there's that you don't get to have that tranquil domestic scene if you don't have national security, if you don't have protection for your families. And I told that story to a Dutch friend of mine who's a journalist. And he said, yeah, we have this expression in Dutch, which is soft doctors make wounds stink. And I was like, you mean because they a soft doctor, like a weak doctor doesn't properly clean a wound and make it bleed and so the wound becomes infected and starts to stink. And I just thought it was such a I thought it really captured what we're doing wrong here and what it is that the Dutch are doing right. They have tough doctors. They did not have I mean, the opioid crisis. Everyone blames the drug companies. Everyone blames the doctors, you know, um, and the regulators. But the public had an entitled sense that it was somehow entitled to experience no pain. And that the Dutch don't view it that way. The Dutch would be more likely to say, well, we don't want you to have too much pain, but we also don't want you to become addicted to opioids. And so how about a little bit of pain and a little bit of medicine? There's a much stronger balance and a much greater appreciation that some amount of pain. This is the stoic tradition that that was a big part, bigger part of this book is the role is played by Viktor Frankl, which is that. You know, that some amount of pain and suffering is part of life, and we need to remind ourselves of that and stop trying to make it go away. And that the effort to get rid of pain and suffering actually ends up creating much more pain and suffering in the long term. There are things that work. And and I want people to know if they read San Francisco, they will have some tools in their tool chest. Contingency management, assertive case management, probation programs that are swift, certain, and fair. I want to know the three most important things, that were, and police, by the way, you need police. You need a lot of police. You need to go in to the chop. They thought it would take eight hours. It took two hours. You've got to back it up. You've got to protect people. You've got to punish criminals. You cannot let them out. But you are also, like I am, not in favor of the incarceration of nonviolent dependent people, but you are in favor of their care. But can you quickly tell us about some of these contingency management, assertive case management probation programs that are swift, certain, and fair, Michael Schellenberger. Sure. So the idea is, so most of us would like to see, for people that can be rehabilitated, rehabilitation. That I think certainly goes for addicts, but even petty criminals, particularly early on in a criminal's career. And so there's been this incredible work done that shows that because criminals are not long-term thinkers, they're often not calculating, am I going to go to prison for a long time? That means that you have to have a swift response and that the criminal has to expect it. So that that's the idea of swift and certain. And that that matters more to changing behavior than does a particularly long sentence. And so we, I think the good news here is that we can avoid mass incarceration while also maintaining law and order. 
But I do think it's going to require some reforms of the criminal justice system. I think that there's a related issue around universal psychiatric care. A lot of a lot of drug addiction comes from mental illness, if not from serious mental illness like schizophrenia. It comes from untreated depression or anxiety and depression. Self-medication that slides into addiction, right? Self-medication addiction. That's right. A lot of people just need an antidepressant or an an ADHD drug or some much more moderate and maybe some therapy or exercise or church or some community, something that kind of helps them. But we don't really have a very good system of that. We never put that in place. And I think if you did that right, then you would end up being able to prevent a lot of the uh, crimes that we see occurring and preventing the mass incarceration that I think we decided we didn't want to go back to. But we are sort of going – I think America the, – the punchline of San Francisco is that there needs to be an evolution from just long sentences or no sentences to swift and certain sentences, universal psychiatric care, and, and a much more of a middle path than the one that we've been pursuing. I want to talk about – everybody has a grand idea. I have little grand ideas. County USC has been empty because of earthquake fragility for 20 years. It's got seven or 11 stories of empty rooms with plumbing where you could put the psychologically troubled people. Wow. Uh, I, I know. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that crazy? Seven stories of empty hospital rooms because of earthquake worries. Uh, don't get me started. I want to talk about Cal Psych because I think I could get behind Cal Psych, uh, provided that people had the authority and I think you could probably get behind Judge Carter becoming czar of this. Tell people what Cal Psych is, your your programmatic proposal at the end of San Francisco. Yeah, sure. So the basic way to solve the problem is to just do what Amsterdam and every other civilized city has done, which is have sufficient shelters for people to stay in. They should be safe and clean, but they shouldn't be luxurious. They should be low cost. They should be located in places where the rent is cheap. People there should be able to get the treatment they need, either rehab for their addictions or psychiatric care or both. Those folks that are on a personal plan and making progress towards it, including with abstinence, um, should have some kind of reward for that behavior improvement. And that might be their own room, uh, might be in a group home, uh, but we should use that those those benefits, those housing as a reward the problem is very – it's impossible to solve at the county level because this population is highly transient. That's the word that we used to use, in fact, to call hobos or, or homeless people transient. And so – and then the other problem is that the real estate values are too high in the big cities. And so you need to and, – and the other thing is that to get clean off of drugs, to be in rehab – it's best not to be near the drug dealing. Now, we should shut down the open drug markets for sure. But I think a lot of addicts to recover, they need three months somewhere away from the open drug scene. You know, they could be in the countryside. They could be in the Central Valley, places where land is really cheap and inexpensive and therefore labor is cheaper. And so that's what CalPsych would be able to do. And so, you know, it's impossible. People kind of go, how much would these things cost? And the issue is, well, are you trying to get people towards independence or are you trying to make people dependent? Because if you're trying to keep people dependent, it's very expensive. But if you're looking for independence, then the costs come way down. There's just a lot of addicts for whom they just need 90-day inpatient treatment and then some kind of probationary period. There's always relapses. That's just part of overcoming addiction. But if you put some pressure on people, if you create some good rewards – there's every reason to believe that we can help people to overcome their addictions, but it does require a more efficient, hierarchical, and centralized approach to psychiatric and addiction care than the one that we have. It's very unpolitically correct, but the best addiction and homeless agency in America is Salvation Army. They are barred, by the way, from providing services in Los Angeles. They picked up from Skid Row and left because you may not make abstinence a condition of a government-supported shelter. Andy Bales probably told you that, too, about the uh, Los Angeles mission that he operates. Um, I, I think unless you get Portland, Seattle, San Francisco, L.A., and maybe Santa Barbara all on the same page, and San Diego, it won't work because the West Coast is where people want to live if they're going to be addicted and outdoors. That's where they're going to go. My last couple of questions, Michael, are about you. 
What's been the reaction to San Francisco? People like me want to talk to you, but I'm not sure your friends want you to talk to me. Well, progressives have become really intolerant. So for sure, they they progress. My, my progressive friends don't like it when I go on Fox News. That's just intolerant. That's illiberal. I just ignore that and point out the, the hypocrisy. The response to San Francisco has been obviously some real hostility from some folks. The They've lied about the book, which is always a tricky strategy for them because it means as soon as somebody reads the book, they can tell that it's not what they said, what people said it was. But, you know, the book is full of voices of homeless people. One of the things that people say is, oh, I didn't interview any homeless people. That's absurd. I interviewed hundreds of homeless people. They're all throughout the book. There are some folks that are more open minded. I mean, there's two things going on right now. The first is that the progressives that are in power are very defensive. They know very. there's a problem. It's not very. like they're blind to it. On the, on the other hand, they just don't they, – they're scared to confront the radical left because the radical left, as I document in the book, they'll protest people at their homes, protest politicians in their homes. Um, I was just at an event in the Tenderloin and someone tried to basically disrupt it. They engage in illiberal, undemocratic, totalitarian tactics. Uh, yep. So I don't – I expect that, that will increase rather than decrease. Um we're in a leadership vacuum. You know, it's interest. It's it sounds like hyperbole, but you when you see the society start to fall apart, the leaders just stop. They stop trying and they stop pretending like they even know what to do. And that's a big part of what's happening in San Francisco. You saw the lootings of the luxury stores, all the luxury, not all of them, but a bunch of the luxury stores are now are boarded up. And the mayor said, oh, I don't know. People don't necessarily mind that. I mean, uh, yeah, it's I, I want to close like he's with just given up. I want to close with two points, and and it's a great hour conversation, Michael. But people really have to read San Francisco to get it. Is that you point out there is a homelessness industrial complex in the Build Back Better bill, separate line items, four billion two hundred sixty million dollars for planning grants uh, to develop and evaluate housing policy plans and substantially improve housing strategies. $20 million for research and evaluation related to housing planning. Do you realize that if you're successful, if I'm successful, a lot of people lose their incomes? I hate, to, I hate to attribute the wrong motives to people, but this is a lot of money that you may disintermediate people from if people read San Francisco and act on it. For sure. There's definitely big financial interests that are involved. You know, at the same time, if you were to go for a housing earned approach rather than housing first, you know, the, for example, the Dutch, uh, the Dutch actually have Salvation Army as a subcontractor for them. Two thousand workers at Salvation Army. So somebody's always going to I mean, so Salvation Army is making they have a financial interest in the Dutch system. And so somebody's going to have an interest in it unless it's complete, even if it's entirely government run. But in the case of the Dutch, they subcontracted out to Salvation Army. So it's it's there's always going to be some amount of societal resources spent on taking care of people that can't take care of themselves. You know, my aunt had schizophrenia and lived in a group home. She never worked, couldn't work um, or at least wasn't able to by the time she got into the group home. And so there's always some amount of people that are going to have to be taken care of. It's really an issue of of the fact that there's no accountability or responsibility or anything required of the people that have been designated victims. Well, I want to I want to add one detail. I'm going from here literally from talking to you to ring a bell at the kettle with the national commander of the Salvation Army, Ken Hodder. I'm not an, a salvationist. Uh, theologically, I, I disagree. But Ken and his wife, Jolene, they're the top of the United States Salvation Army. They don't own their home. They don't own their car. They don't own anything. No member of the Salvation Army anywhere owns their property. They are like the mendicant orders in the medieval times of Europe. So you can always kind of tell when somebody's getting rich off of a group home or a program and when people aren't. And I think that's a good poker tell about motives. The idea of millions of dollars for planning and research, we know what works. We know what doesn't work. I mean, that's my last question. Do we know what to do if we had the courage to do it? Michael Schellenberger, author of San Francisco. Oh, absolutely. I mean, somebody, a, a new governor of California could could implement this entire agenda 
through a combination of executive orders, ballot initiatives, and legislation. So if the legislature wasn't going to do what needed to be done, the governor could pass ballot initiatives implementing all this. And it would be, frankly, the rest of the country would follow because California is so big and so powerful. So you just really need um, leadership to articulate the new vision that I describe in San Francisco. I hope it's a turning point. It may be a turning point. If it gets read by enough people, it will be a turning point. And I'll do my best to bring your eyes to San Francisco. It's in bookstores now. It's available at Amazon. You can't forget the title, San fran Sicko. Michael Schellenberger, thank you for joining me on the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Thanks for having me, Hugh. My pleasure. That concludes today's episode of the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. Make sure you come back and check out all the other podcasts on the Salem Podcast Network. And remember to thank our sponsors, andrewandtodd.com. If you believe in long-form interviews like I do, then do your real estate transactions with Andrew Del Rey and Todd Avakian. I've known both men for a long time. Andrewandtodd.com. Go there, answer a couple of questions. They'll tell you what's best to do with your house or call them at 888-888-1172. You'll be glad you did, and you'll be glad that you listened to the next episode of The Interview. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.